What a delight to be here on the 30th anniversary for Dave Huey and Luann. Uh, I was so nervous when Rick Caldwell was here because I, I know Rick well enough to know because we were college roommates. And I really feared that he might tell some stories that just weren't appropriate for a Sunday morning worship service. Rick, I'm so proud of you. Rick and I both survived our careers, frankly, because we made a deal years ago that I would never tell all the things that I could about him if he would never tell all the things he knows about me. That's why we're both here today. <laughs> Otherwise, when I became governor, I would have had to pardon myself for some things, I'm sure. Now, the story is, I got to know Dave and Luann Huey in 1986. I was pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Pine Bluff, and we were looking for a youth pastor. And I called the guy that I knew to be the expert, and I mean this sincerely, the most knowledgeable and resourceful person in all the country when it came to youth ministry, and that was my old college roommate, Rick Cowell. And I said, Rick, I know you know kind of who's out there. Do you have any recommendations for somebody who could come and be youth pastor? And he said, I know just the guy. And he told me about Dave Huey. And we called Dave and asked him to come visit with us, and he did. And he and Luann came, and we decided after that weekend that we didn't want Dave, but we sure wanted Luann. <laughs> but the trouble was, she said she wouldn't come without him. So that's how Dave ended up youth pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Pine Bluff. Truthfully, it was, uh, it was kind of an unusual situation because in the several months leading up to their actual coming, when we had already called them, uh, I ended up going to Texarkana to pastor a church there. So I think Luann and Dave were probably there for, what, three or four Sundays? Was it that long? And then I left. <laughs> and I wondered, would they ever speak to me again? I mean, that's not really cool. You say, come and be part of this team. And they get there and you say, adios, amigos. May the Lord be with you. And he was. He really was. And for six years, he ministered effectively and faithfully at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Pine Bluff. Built such deep relationships with people. They've always been one of those people who never lost sight of the mission. And he's a person who believes the book all the way through. Even to the maps, he believes. It's inspired. And I love people who are faithful to the Word of God and are never apologetic in believing that the Scripture is the infallible and errant truth and the inspired Word of the living God, and we can trust it. And one of the reasons that I know that he's been so effective here for 30 years is because not only has he been faithful to you as a congregation, but he's been faithful to the Word and he's imparted it faithfully to you. When he came here, a youth pastor, he served in several positions. You finally found one he could do. Senior pastor. Good for you. You know, not many people stay in a church position for 30 years. They just don't. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. Some have said that in the life of a Baptist pastor, there are three phases, all of which relate to that of a cat. When he first comes, it's nice kitty. After a while, 
poor kitty. <laughs> then a little later, scat, cat. <laughs> Somehow Dave has been able to endear himself to this congregation and to a larger congregation who appreciate that he is one of those people who never wavers in his faith and in his commitment to the congregation. Now, if there's any problem with my being here today, don't blame Dave. He didn't even know I was going to come until Luann told him. That is the truth. She contacted me and said, would you come and speak for his 30th anniversary? And I said, I'd love to. I'd be honored. She said, Dave doesn't know anything about it. I thought, you might want to let him know, just in case. He may still be bitter about that thing way back in Pine Bluff. I don't know. But true to form, he was bitter about it. But Luann said, he's coming anyway. So that's why I'm here, just so you clearly understand. My message today is on bitterness and how to deal with it. And hopefully Dave will take it to heart. Actually, this morning, I'm going to speak only to those who have ever been disappointed in life, those who've ever been hurt, those who have ever been betrayed, those who have ever experienced a moment in your Christian life where God directed you someplace you did not want to go. Because in the reality of our lives, there are many times we ask God, why? Why is this happening to me? God, this is unfair. Lord, do you not know what's what taking place in my life right now? Are you not aware of it? Now, if you've been a believer for even a few months, but certainly for a few years, I can't imagine that you have not had those experiences where you really question why the Lord was allowing you to go through something that just did not seem like it was in your best interest. And in fact, one of the things that you would say to him is, Lord, this is not the way I had things planned. Now, if you've never experienced any of that, I'd just go ahead and excuse you and let you go home because this probably won't apply to you, but it may apply to somebody else. Because all of us in our lives have had moments where the Lord took us on a detour away from where we thought we were supposed to go. And the hardest lesson in life to learn is that sometimes the detours in our life actually become our destinations. And if the Lord had not given us the detour, we would have never arrived at the destination that we ultimately came to recognize was his will. In March of 2002, 20 years ago this year, it was during my tenure as governor, and I was in India and had gone there for a trade mission. And one of the meetings I was having was with a gentleman by the name of J.M.C. Balayogi, who was the speaker of the Indian House. He would be the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi, but much nicer. That's the only political thing I will say today. <laughs> Relax, calm down, it's going to be okay. But I'm just setting the tone for you because he was the speaker of the Indian uh, House of Representatives. And we had a meeting in a little village called Bimavaram, and we had flown in on helicopters and we were there to see some orphanages and visit with the people of this small village. Then we were to have dinner, and at that dinner we were supposed to consummate what was a trade agreement between India and the state of Arkansas. 
And we had prepared for this for months. And it had some real opportunities for our state and, and frankly, for many people in India as well. And so during the course of the dinner, before we ever got to sitting down for the time of conducting the business and consummating our trade agreement, his aides came to him and said that something had happened urgently in the capital and he would have to return immediately. Now it was originally planned that after our meeting we would board, there were two helicopters, he and I would get on one with a couple of our staff members and other staff would get on the other one. And we would go to the next village where we were supposed to overnight and then have some meetings the following day. His staff came to him and said, you're going to have to leave immediately. So the helicopter that he and I were supposed to be on together took him and his staff away and we finished the dinner and got on the other helicopter onto the next community. Not just disappointed, but devastated. We come halfway around the world and we were not even going to get to finish the meeting and make the deal work. And quite frankly, it was one of those moments when I was saying, Lord, I don't understand. I've come all this way. We've done months of preparation. And it makes no sense that he ends up flying away before we even get to have our final meeting. We went on the next day. And that's when we found out that not long after takeoff, his helicopter experienced engine trouble. And it crashed killing every single person on board, including the speaker, Balayogi. I cannot begin to tell you how I was chilled to the bone thinking that that was the very helicopter I was supposed to be on. Here I was complaining to God about not being on it. And God was saying, you still upset about it? You sure you still mad? How many times have we had those moments when we were upset with God because we didn't get our way, but thank God we didn't, because our way would have been disastrous, and God spared us. And he spared us by taking us on a detour that we did not plan and we did not like, at least not at the time. Throughout the scripture, there are experiences of detours. And maybe one of the most prominent ones comes out of Genesis chapter 50. And I want to share with you the verses 15 through 21. We could read the whole text, but that would be a little difficult. Might be here a little longer than you wanted to be. This is the story of Joseph. And you remember very vividly, I'm sure, that Joseph was that young brother who was the favorite of his father Jacob. And Joseph got the coat of many colors, which was a sign of being favored. And his brothers hated that. You know, if you've got a lot of kids in the family and one kid gets all the breaks and one kid seems to be the favorite, it really does create resentment among the others, and that's exactly what happened. And Joseph's brothers, they hated him. And of course, Joseph wasn't genteel about it. He rubbed it in their faces. How you like my coat? A lot better than your bland garments. And that just made it worse. And there came a time, as you recall in the scripture, that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and frankly left him for dead and they assumed that he had long since died. They figured he didn't even make it much into slavery. He probably would have smarted off and that would have been the end of it. But as it happened, Joseph did in fact be carried away into slavery. He was falsely accused of sexual assault. He languished in prison for years and years and years. 
People broke their promises to him when he interpreted dreams, and they said, I'll tell Pharaoh what you've done. And they didn't. I mean, his life was a mess. And here he is in this terrible position, but there came a time at which he interpreted the dream. It went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh ended up bringing him into his trust. And the result was Joseph became the number two in command of the nation of Egypt. A famine happened in Israel. They were all going to starve to death. Joseph's brothers, along with Jacob, they came to Egypt to beg for food. And that's when they realized Joseph is not only alive, he is in the position where he could save their lives and their nation. Jacob died. They went back to bury him. Then they went back to Egypt, and the brothers assumed Joseph, now that the father was gone, Joseph would have them all killed. Quite frankly, I think most of us, in our at least fleshly way, would say, well, it serves them right. They thought they were having him killed, and all these just insufferable things that have happened to him, and it would not be anything other than a just dessert that the next move would be that Joseph would say, okay, you guys left me for dead. You sold me into slavery. You thought I was dead. You wished I were dead. So now here's what's about to happen to you. Well, they went and threw themselves at the mercy of Joseph. Just let us be your slaves. Just let us be your slaves. And in chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're supposed to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servant of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came, they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the savings of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them. I think one of the most powerful verses in all the Old Testament is when Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for harm, God used for good. It wasn't that God authored, that God concocted the evil that happened to Joseph. God doesn't do bad things but a lot of people do. But it's that God can take the things that were intentionally designed to harm us and he can use it not only for our good, but for his glory and his kingdom. I had a pastor when I was a teenager, I'll never forget, he used to make the statement, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And that's more of a colloquial way of saying what was intended for harm, God used for good. In all of our lives, there are those moments where God takes something that we thought was bad, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. It happened to Jeremiah. Chapter 7, God told Jeremiah, don't even pray. I'm going to bring judgment upon this nation. No point in praying. 
because nothing's going to change. They're going to get torched. Chapter 16, he said, Jeremiah, don't get married. Because if you get married and have children, you don't want to bring them into this world. Because what I'm about to do is not something you want to share with other people. And that's not what Jeremiah was thinking when he became God's prophet. That he's going to tell the people, you guys are toast. Just so you know. And no praying is going to fix this because you've messed up. It's God is going to bring judgment. I've often said, I'm glad that I'm not God. And I know a lot of other people are too, for a host of reasons. But part of which, I don't have God's patience. I mean, I would have done some things to this country and to people in it long ago. I'm not going to give their names today. But God's more patient than, than I would be or that you would be. But his patience has a limit. You may remember the story of Jonah. God told Jonah that he was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah didn't want to go. He went the exact opposite direction, 180 degrees from where he was told to go in Nineveh. He went to Tarsus. And by the way, Jonah was not afraid of going to preach in Nineveh and having a successful crusade. He was afraid that, in fact, he would have success there. And all these people would repent, and he couldn't be upset with them anymore and hate them. He didn't want them to repent because he wanted God to bring judgment. He took his own detour, and God gave him one in the belly of a fish. Jesus had detours. He had a disciple who betrayed him. He had another who denied him. And so if there's detours in your life, it's not like you're the first and only person that's ever had one. It's that God is using them for his purpose. Let me mention three things today, how God uses the detours. First of all, there is a path on those detours, a path that God will take you, and it is not a path that you choose. It may be a path that circumstances deliver to you. When I was 11 years old, I was playing Little League Baseball in my hometown of Hope, Arkansas, and I was catcher for the CBC, Century Bible Class Little League team. We were, without argument, the worst team in the Little League. Never won a game. I was behind home plate catching, and one night a kid hit a foul ball. I did something catchers are never supposed to do. I took my right hand and moved it away from the mitt, and I stuck it here because I wanted to catch the foul ball and at least get one out. And I misjudged it, and instead of hitting in the mitt, it hit this forefinger and just took it and splintered it and brought it back, pointing that other way at the elbow. It was an ugly sight. I held up my finger. I said, hey, coach, I think I broke my finger. <laughs> Man, I should have been an orthopedic surgeon with insight like that. My Little League career was over. I couldn't play the rest of the year. So the coach said, why don't you go up in the press box and you can be the PA announcer at the park. So I did, 11 years old. I go up there. It was a great job. I got all the Cokes and popcorn I wanted, and I sat and got to see every game. Never had to dress out and get sweaty and hot. I just sat up there and said, the batter is Dave Huey. <laughs> On deck, Rick Caldwell. And I did this, and it was fine. Now, Hope, Arkansas is such a small little town that the local radio station broadcast every one of the Little League baseball games. Let that sink in a minute. I mean, it didn't hit me till I was adult and, and realized 
Were there people out there that honestly said, honey, it's time to go sit up in the front room. We're going to listen to those 12-year-old boys play Little League ball. <laughs> Somehow they did it. One night, the guy that normally did the play-by-play -play got sick, and the manager of the station came, and he was going to have to do all the ball games. And I could tell he was not excited about that. So half-jokingly, he turned to me, and he said, hey, kid, how'd you like to call a few innings of a baseball game? Too stupid to say no. I said, sure. He slid the mic down the table and said, have at it. And I did. And I called several innings of a ball game. And when it was over, he said, you know, kid, you're not bad. When you get to be 14 and can get your FCC license, if you come see me, I'll give you a job. Now, I want you to understand, he didn't say I was good. He just said I wasn't bad. <laughs> and at that particular radio station, being good was not a qualification that was necessary. It was just that you couldn't be really, really bad. So within days of my 14th birthday, I acquired my FCC license and I went to work at the radio station. That was the turning point in my life because I worked my way through junior high, high school, college, and grad school doing radio and ultimately television. It has taken me everywhere that I've been in my life and it never would have happened had it not been that I broke my finger when I was 11 years old. When that happened that night, I thought my life was over. I mean, think about it. You're 11. There's nothing else to do in hope but play baseball. And when you can't play baseball anymore, you think, God, why have you done this to me? This is so unfair. But the broken finger became the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a detour. God put me on a path that I really didn't want to go. God has purposes for that in every case. When God takes us on a detour, we discover what the Father's intentions are rather than what our intentions are. All of you have had children. You know what happens when they cut themselves or fall and have a major laceration. You take them to the emergency room and they have to have stitches. And if they're a toddler, I can tell you what happens. They squirm, they fight, they scream, and they resist even the anesthetic, and then they resist the stitches. And the whole time you're trying to hold them still and keep them quiet, and here's what you tell them. This is good for you. It's like my parents when they used to spank me. One day you're going to thank me for this. Yeah, right. <laughs> Can't wait till that day. And you're holding your kids still, trying to just say, be still, it's going to be over in a minute, you've got to have this done, and it will be better. But that's not how you're seeing it. And how many times in our lives when God puts us in a detour, we're not where we want to be. We're not seeing the purpose. All we see is that we are somewhere that was not our choice. How do we deal with it? I'll tell you, the only time we are able to accept it is when we so trust our Father that when he says, be still, this will be good for you, and we actually relax and let it happen. See, that's what maturity is. Some people think maturity is a certain age. There are people who are old, they're still not mature. Maturity is trust. Spiritual maturity is when you trust the Father that even the things that you did not ask for, the path you didn't want to go, has a purpose that God has that you can't see, but one day will be revealed to you. And then God gives us the product. At some point, God will reveal why we took that path, what was the purpose? 
and the product of our destination becomes clear. It's a bigger outcome than we ever imagined. You see, the benefits of a detour are that you see things you never would have seen. If you're driving down Interstate 40 and you come upon this stop traffic and then they say you're going to detour, nobody, and I mean nobody, says, this is awesome. We're going to detour. We're going to be late to that concert in Memphis. We may not make it, says nobody. But here's what happens every time you do a detour. You see things that you would not have seen. You go places you never would have gone. And you go slower than you ever intended to go. And it's in those detours that God reveals some things that would never make sense otherwise. You see, we live our lives, and we often quote Romans 8.28. I bet everybody here could quote it. Maybe from different versions it'd be slightly different, but you get the gist of it. For we know that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. And the Bible says all things work together for good, and most people totally miss that, and they say, you know, the Bible says all things are good. It doesn't say that. It just says all things work together for good, and there is a huge difference between the two. There's some things that aren't good. If you go to the doctor and he diagnoses you with cancer, that is not good. If you go out on the parking lot today after service and all four of your tires are slashed, I mean, you can run around your car and say, praise God, but I'm going to think you're weird because that ain't good. There's some things that happen in our lives. Frankly, it is not good, and the Bible never says that all things are good. Read it again. All things work together for good, but not for everybody. But those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you're not a believer, if you've never come to that place in your life when you have repented of your sins and you have trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord, Savior, and Master of your life, this verse doesn't apply. There are going to be some things in your life, it's just flat bad. And there's no divine, ultimate, heavenly purpose because you have decided to live outside of his will, his purpose, and his sovereignty and where you're headed. But if you love him, if you believe in him, then all the things work together for good. Janet, my wife, who's here, when we were just less than a year into our marriage, she was having all kinds of back trouble, went to the doctor, and the doctor said, hmm, I think it's muscle spasms, so he gave her muscle relaxers. That didn't work. He ended up putting her in the hospital in Arkadelphia where we were in school and uh, put her in traction for two weeks, and that didn't do any good. And we went to Little Rock because we were referred there to an orthopedic surgeon. He said, ah, textbook case of slip disc. That's what this is. Slip disc. If it doesn't get better, we'll operate. He was so cocky. And it didn't get better. Surgery was scheduled for her slip disc that was such a textbook case. 
And they did a myelogram the day before the surgery was supposed to be done. Many of you have had one of those. They inject spine, uh, dye in your spine. It shows up on the x-ray so that they can see which disc is herniated and which one to fix. So they were doing that procedure, and I was waiting in the waiting room. And then they call me down to that little room off the waiting room. You ever been pulled in there? They never take you in there to give you good news, ever. If they ever pull you into that little room off the side of the waiting room, brace yourself. Because if they have good news, they announce it to the whole waiting room. Hey, everything's great. Your, uh, your husband's going to be terrific because I'm such a good surgeon. I did my job real well. If it's bad news, they take you to the little room. And they took me there, and I waited. Guy came in. His face was whiter than his lab coat, and he said, your wife is not going to have surgery tomorrow. What, she healed? No, that's not it. Your wife doesn't have a slip disc. But gee, I thought you said it was a textbook case. Your wife has a tumor inside the canal of her spine. I can't operate on it outside my area. I've called in a neurosurgeon. He'll come in and talk with you in a little while. And I waited a while and he came in. And he told us, he said, we're not sure this is operable. And if it isn't, there's nothing we can do other than try to make you as comfortable as possible. And if we can get to it, because it's inside the canal of the spine, most likely we'll have to sever the spinal cord in order to remove the tumor. We can save your life, but you'll be a paraplegic for the rest of your life. And that was the best news. Lovely. I'm thinking, okay, let me see if I get this right, God. There are people out selling drugs on elementary school campuses. I'm trying to go to school so I can serve you. And less than a year into our marriage, my wife may be dying. What's up? I never felt so abandoned in my life. It's like God said, bye-bye. And many of you have been there when the pain of your heart was worse than the pain of your body and you felt God had just left. You didn't understand. Here was a detour that you never asked for. But I can tell you, I learned some things about the verse, Romans 8, 28. Because God never said everything would be good. It would work together for good. The doctors went into the surgery. They were, I'd say, miraculously able to get to the tumor and remove it. It meant her learning basically how to walk again. Six weeks of radiation therapy every day, driving from Arkadelphia to Little Rock for a four-minute radiation session, which back in those days was pretty much primitive and almost like being microwaved on the inside. They told us we'd never have children. That'd be out of the question. But three children later, the doctors were yet wrong again. And all the time these years, I, I've wondered, why that detour? You see, Romans 8, 28, kind of explains it. Some things happen in your life, they're not good. God didn't bring the bad stuff, but God is so sovereign, he's so amazing. He can take all the things that we thought were horrible, the detours that we didn't want to go on, and he can work them together for good. As Janet recovered, she decided to take up cake decorating because by this time I was in grad school, we needed to make a little money because we were just barely, barely existing. We had a $40 a month duplex, and at $40 a month, it was grossly overpriced, I can tell you that. 
She decided she could bake cakes and sell them and we could make a little extra money. We nearly went broke making extra money doing that because she bought all those little pans and the squeezy things that you squirt the icing through. And, and here's what happened. She was really good at it. I mean, spectacularly good at it. And she'd make these amazing cakes. And I say, wow, that's great. How much will you sell that one for? She said, oh, you know, that's for Anne's birthday. They're friends and they're struggling too. We can't charge them. <laughs> okay. And the next cake, it would be somebody's anniversary or it'd be somebody they're getting well. And you know, that's what I say, we nearly went broke making money on cakes. It was really something. <laughs> she would get to making cakes. I'd come in from class and I'd see all this stuff spread out over the kitchen counter. And being the very considerate husband that I've always been, that was not a punchline, by the way, just so you know. I'd come in the kitchen, I'd see all this stuff. I said, you know, don't worry about cooking anything for dinner. No need. You're, you're busy. You got all this cake stuff. I'll take care of it. So I'd go and I'd go over to the counter and I'd see a stick of butter and I'd pick it up and munch on that a little bit. I'd get a handful of dry flour and put that down my throat. Needed a little something to wash it down, so I'd get a big bottle of vanilla extract and take that down. After a few swigs of that, I didn't care what else happened. I'd get some of that Hershey's vanilla cocoa powder, you know, that you put in a cake, and I'd toss that up, and well, that chocolate flavor, a little bitter, but you know. And I'd just take whatever the ingredients were, get a spoon, dip it into the Crisco can, and have some shortening to go along with it. Kind of eased all that other stuff going in. And I know what most of you are thinking. You're saying, there's no way that you took those things in their raw form and you consumed them. And you would be right, because I'm not that stupid. No, that's not how you eat a cake, is it? You get all these ingredients, and if you ever think about it, everything that goes into the cake, isolated unto itself, is an incredibly unpleasant ingredient. There's not one thing that goes into the cake just by itself that you want to eat singularly. That's not how you eat the cake. You have a plan, it's predetermined, it's been tested by somebody probably many, many times. It's called a recipe. And you take the recipe, the plan, and you measure various ingredients of all these horrible things and you put them in a bowl and once you get them there, you don't let them just sit. No, 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 no. You get a machine that's incredibly violent called a mixer. And I say violent because every word on the outside of the mixer says beat, whip, liquefy, some tough stuff. And you take all those unpleasant things and you apply such a level of violence that when it's over, it doesn't look anything like those individual ingredients. It's a gooey mess. You pour it into a pan, you put it in an oven that's hot enough to make your blood boil twice, and you let it sit there long enough so that the entire molecular structure changes to a spongy mass, and you bring it out and cool it and frost it, and everyone in the house wants a piece of the finished product. But nobody, nobody would ever eat the ingredients by themselves. Because the combination of the unpleasant things following a plan that somebody has tested becomes the most desired thing on your table. You see, God never said everything is good. He just said that he would take all the things that weren't so good and he would bring them together. And the result 
would be, as it says in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. God is not in the business of just making us content, happy, and comfortable. He is in the business of transforming us to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a detour. That's a destination. But we would never choose to get there if it weren't for the detours. But we'll never be unhappy with the destination where he takes us. And we'll say, praise God, not for the process, but for the product. Please bow your heads with me for a moment. And I want to ask the simple question today. Are you going through, in your own life, a detour? Is something happening that you just didn't ask for? Quite frankly, you don't like it. And to be really honest with me, if, if I could look into your heart, you'd say, and I'm kind of mad at God about this. I totally understand that. And you know what else? God understands that. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but God's big enough that he can handle you being mad at him. Sometimes we say, I don't want to tell the Lord how mad I am. He already knows. You might as well be honest and say, Lord, I'm angry. I feel like you've cheated me. You've taken me someplace. I don't want to be here. This is not fair. It's not right. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt. God, why? We all know that. That horrible sense of abandonment. Spiritual maturity is when you say, Lord, I do not understand what I'm going through and why, but I know you love me. I don't know why you love me like this, but I know you love me. And in my imperfect way, I want to ask you to bring about in my life that I would be like Jesus. That's my prayer. As I pray that prayer, pray it with me. And if you're not a believer, what a great moment to say, Lord, things happen in my life that are not good. I don't want them to be empty and worthless. I trust you today so that even the things in my life I do not understand will have purpose, meaning, and will take me to a destination where you will demonstrate your power and your sovereignty. Dear God, help us right now, this very moment, to quit being angry at you and instead to look at our own hearts and ask you to give us a real sense of the destination that you're taking us, to be like Jesus. Forgive us for thinking that it was all about our detours and that it was all about us, because it's really all about you and your glory. And we have a hard time seeing that sometimes. Show us this day a day of spiritual maturity in our lives. And we pause to say thank you for the ministry of Dave Huey at this church for 30 years. As he has presented the word, he's faithfully helped people through their detours. And we thank you for the faithfulness he's had to your word and to you. I ask you to make this a moment of genuine decision in the lives of people here today. In Jesus' name.